Hello everyone and welcome to the new episode of the Genesis Temple podcast. I'm Damiano. I have the pleasure of having with me Steve Inns, who will be familiar to you as the writer of the Broken Sword series and the So Blonde series too. Hello Steve, how are you doing? Hello there, I'm doing fine, thank you. Uh, it's nice to be invited onto this uh, podcast, uh, so thank you for that. Well, my, my pleasure. And, and it's kind of a tradition on the podcast to uh, ask the first question to ask the guest, uh, how did they get into the whole of uh, gaming development and writing and uh, video games? Because I know you had uh, quite a late start in the industry joining uh, Revolution <laughs> Software. Yes, I mean most people, you know, join the games industry from from college or something like that these days. Mm -hmm. um, but um, like when when I left university, I mean there there was no real games industry. I think one one or two people were were, were doing some stuff, um, but nothing nothing really major. Um, so it just didn't didn't come on my um, horizon in any way. So um, I was actually thirty five when I joined the industry. I'd previously done some work, been employed as uh, assistant manager in bingo halls, and I'd worked at um, metal refinery, and then sort of like did some odd bits and pieces, you know, like uh, did some cartoon strips for a local paper, and <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it was a bit strange really. And then I I knew that I wanted to, you know, go into something more creative, and and someone that um, I had contact with at the time said that they knew somebody at Revolution Software and that they were looking for uh, an artist. So I took my portfolio along and, and managed to get um, a trial period and then I got the job. So <laughs> it was kind of very fortunate in a way. You know, so so I joined Revolution at, mm -hmm. at the time when they were were in the middle of uh, making uh, Beneath Steel Sky, um, and it was just fantastic to be a part of that. You know, mm -hmm. sort of and, and work on some of the graphics, some of the background animations, you know, the sprites and and, and stuff like this, and and then obviously we moved on to the Broken Sword uh, series. So so <laughs> the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. And um, uh, I've heard some of the other podcasts you've done, and if I don't, if I remember correctly, you had never actually touched a computer before uh, joining Revolution Software. So you you had never basically been a, a gamer, let's say. No, I mean that's not not entirely true. I mean, I oh, okay. I you know sort of like play games on um, the Commodore sixty four. Um, oh, right. A number of games on there, which I thoroughly enjoyed. One of which was a game called The Staff of Karnath. Yeah, classic. Which did some clever stuff with sprites, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like making multicolored sprites out of multiple sprites, if you know what I mean. Uh, you couldn't do more than two colors in a sprite. So they, they found clever ways of, of expanding that. And um, yeah, it was just a great game. Never completed it, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was. It was too difficult, yeah. well, at least for me, anyway. <laughs> that was usually the case with uh, Commodore sixty four games. Yeah, and then um, yeah, there are a number of a number of great games, but I, I'd never I'd never used a 
computer for okay. you know uh, any graphical work oh. or anything like that so i had i had to learn it very quickly <laughs> at revolution when i started we were using something called dpaint which had originally started on the amiga and then they'd made a pc version and we were using that for creating the sprites and touching up the um, backgrounds and things like this because i mean the backgrounds were painted and they were scanned in and we had to convert them down to 8 bit you know or 256 colors and then you know for the amiga version we had to then convert that down to 32 colors which was <laughs> which could be problematical at times you know because you know sort of you're trying to retain the feel of the original paintings, but you've only got 32 colors to do it in. <laughs> so, so there were some clever sort of like tricks that, you know, the other artists were using that, you know, they taught me. And so it was an interesting period, but, um, you know, sort of, it was, it was great fun as well. You know, and I've, I've always been a fairly fast learner. So, so that kind of worked to my advantage there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you moved to to writing, the, to yeah. designing, and with the Broken Sword series. And how did it happen to you know to go from uh, doing graphics and to to writing? Or was the the shift, let's say? I did move into a producer role before starting the writing, um, in the sense that you know sort of when we started doing broken sword i mean it was so much of a bigger project than than beneath the steel sky and the number of animals you know sort of like number of frames of animation for all the different characters and and, and george in particular um was huge so we had to keep track of it all in, in in very specific ways and back then you know kind of file names could only have eight characters um so we had to kind of like organize all the file names in a very kind of like coded way. So we, we knew where they belonged, you know, like which location they belonged in, which character they, they, they were referred to and what it was, what the actual action. So we had all these, <laughs> you know, like Geo for George, you know, 32 for the location 32. And then it might be, you know, PU for pick up or something like this. So I kind of organized all that and I sort of, I was organizing kind of like requirements for, for all those things. And the next thing I know, sort of like Charles calls me in the office um, and said, uh, we need a producer and you're it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so I became producer for, for a while. And then I moved on to the writing and the design side from there. Um, but the br brilliant thing about being a producer was it enabled me to to sit in on all sorts of meetings you know sort of like design meetings and story meetings and mm -hmm. and, and so on you know meetings with programmers and, and and such so it gave me a very a very broad view of of the de the development process you know when it came to adventure games which mm -hmm. then enabled me well it helped when i moved on to the writing and design side <laughs> it was kind of like i just I just kind of like fell into these different roles almost. <laughs> you don't get given these roles because oh you're you're the only one there kind of thing, you know, yeah. sort of you've got to earn them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like anything, I think. But at the same time, you know, you've got to work hard when you're in that role to make sure that you do the best 
that you you can you know because you know the, the quality of the project is is so important you know sort of and and creating you know the best possible game you know from from you know the design from the the graphics from, you know so the, the the writing itself and and so on is is just vital there's actually um, a project that uh, you that you produced and designed when you were at uh, Revolution Software that I was uh, curious to ask details or anything about it because it's very little talked about. You know, I'm kind of a sucker for mm. obscure games, <laughs> and it's uh, the Golden Glory, the Road to El Dorado adventure game. Oh yes, yes. Which, which I found it was actually quite interesting. I mean. It, it's a tie-in product, so of course, not acclaimed, uh, you know, as <laughs> as appreciated as Revolution Software Adventures. But I thought it was pretty well made. It was quite interesting. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, obviously, I mean, it had a limited budget. Um, you know, sort of like we um, we were doing it in parallel with the work that we were doing on um, In Cold Blood. Yeah. And both came out. In the same year, I believe, it was a a game aimed at around about ten year olds, you know, like eight eight to ten years, something like that. Um, so we had to kind of like write it very differently and 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 create the gameplay very differently. And I, I know a lot of um, adventure gamers don't particularly like it because they feel it's too easy. But that was because of the age group that we were aiming for. And and you know so you you just have to make um, these adaptations um, in the way you approach um, the the audience that we were aiming for. I thought I thought we did a pretty good job. I mean, you know, sort of um, the publisher was happy, um, DreamWorks were happy. So <laughs> I mean, you, you can't really ask more than that. Um, because you know, so like DreamWorks did fantastic mm-hmm. um, job on the original film. Um, although it, I mean it's it's coming from quite a bit of criticism over the years, yeah. But yeah. I I think it's a pretty good film. Mm-hmm. Um, we we love the backgrounds, you know, and, and we try to maintain that quality of background, you know. So even though it was a, you know, kind of like we we'd set it all up in three D mm-hmm. and pre rendered those those three D backgrounds, um, we wanted to retain the feel of that of the film. And and they were really good with DreamWorks because they gave us all the backgrounds, you know, sort of that they'd use in the film mm-hmm. um, to use as reference. So that was absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Sort of like fantastic paintings, and and they were really helpful actually, you know, for for a, a company of that size. Um, they were really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it it was it was good fun to work on that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's um. Yeah, an interesting little chapter in the history of Revolution Software, one that is, you know, almost never mentioned, actually. But yeah, I find it that, you know, in the general um, market of tying products that are usually, you know, uh, with a philosophy of, you know, they're made for kids, so who cares, you know? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that, oh, Road to El Dorado was the, the exception for sure. And... Uh, I I think I mean I feel I could be wrong of course but that the work that you that the revolution did uh, on the Golden Glory game as a three D point and click adventure uh, I think also shaped a bit uh, Broken Sword the Sleeping Dragon if I'm not mistaken I feel a bit of inspiration 
Kind of. I mean, one of the things mm. that that was happening at, the, at that particular time was that no one, you know, publishers didn't want to do traditional 2D point yeah. and click adventures. They, they, they wanted to use 3D. Um, and, you know, sort of like, it was kind of like, how do we do this in, in the best way? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the interim, we'd done a version of the first Broken Sword game for the Game Boy Advance. Mm. And, and because of the interface on the Game Boy Advance, we decided that we would directly control George instead of, you know, sort of like emulating a point and click mm-hmm. interface, we would directly control George. So he, you know, the sprites walked around the screen. And I really like that. Mm-hmm. It sort of like really worked for the Game Boy Advance. And it gave you a kind of like a more direct connectivity to, to the character. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, well, if we can do it here like this, on this small on this small device, you know, sort of like let's see how we can do this, how how we can use that mm-hmm. in a full 3D game. And that's where that's when we decided to create the third broken sword game in, in 3D. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of we wouldn't got the funding for a 2D game. So mm-hmm. so we said, yeah, you know, we've proved that that the direct control works for an adventure. So we'll 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 take that into a 3D broken sword game and that's really where where that kind of came about it's it was a mixture of things all coming together but you know sort of it was the gba that proved that we could we could do it in in that kind of way oh yeah that's interesting (laughs) i actually didn't know and um, since you mentioned george um this is something that uh, i've also read that you uh, that you like that uh, to write the main character as a sort of everyman, you know, as a sort of, you know, ordinary person that the, the main character, the, sorry, that the player can uh, relate to. And do you still uh, think, do you still like it? I mean, do, do, is it still something you do or have you changed your mind? Well, a lot of it will depend on, on the game mm-hmm. um, or the story that you're trying to write. But for something like Broken Sword, I think it just it just works so well. Because here's this ordinary guy on holiday in Paris when, you know, sort of the, the cafe explodes and he's, you know, thrown into this this mystery mm-hmm. um, that he becomes determined to solve. And I think there's something about that that, that you can kind of relate to. Not, not obviously getting, ex- you know, nearly getting blown up outside a cafe, but, <laughs> but, you know, sort of the fact that sometimes you get drawn into into things and you just you know sort of like want to you know sort of like solve them and i think that mm-hmm. you know sort of like rather than you know george being you know the smartest detective in the world or you know the the guy with the biggest muscles or or anything like this he's just he's just an ordinary bloke who who does ordinary things but is determined to get to the to the bottom of this um strange mystery as it were and, and I think that that's quite that's quite a good hook, in a sense. Mm-hmm. A lot of the characters are, are quite ordinary, really. I mean, Nico, you know, she's she's a she's a journalist, but you know, sort of like she's got no, you know, special superpowers or or you know, kung fu abilities or anything. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's really 
it's it's them against the world kind of thing isn't it you know and i think that that's that's always a, a good basis but that doesn't mean that you know you can't do other things i mean when we did in cold blood you know sort of like the main character john cord he was like a super spy type thing you know and and so you know sort of like sometimes you you write the characters that the story needs and and you know sort of that's when it works best you know when you kind of like the characters and the story just kind of like sit very naturally together um and then it's not just a case of the characters being right but how they relate to each other has got to be right as well so you know you get the you know the sparky dialogue you get the you know the the intrigue about you know sort of like you know so are they going to get romantically involved or you know yeah. sort of like are they going to be best friends for forever or they're going to carry on hating each other you know will they continue with their sarcastic <laughs> but it's it's really you know kind of mm -hmm. it's so much about you know getting the right characters for the right for the right story uh because for example when you design the the main character in uh so blonde in uh, sunny uh, she's you know she's she's not really <laughs> the everyday uh girl because you know, she's the daughter of rich parents and mm. everything and you designed her, of course, to uh, that she was supposed to grow a bit with the with the player in the course of the of the adventure. But um, I mean, reading a bit of the opinions views uh, that I remember back then, I think some people were put off by you know the main character bit a bit of a you know take on the, the dump air quote I'm doing air quotes <laughs> dump blonde dump yes blonde I, I can't see them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that most players that complained, uh, I think they didn't play it long enough to see the the character changing. Because I think that that was the point. Yeah, I guess it's it's always a bit of a a risk when you when you take that approach. Um, when I got involved with So Blonde, um, the company uh, Wizard Box, who were based in France in in Paris, they had sketches of the main characters, and they had some you know locations drawn you know like the beach and and one or two others so they can i, I kind of knew what it was meant to look like and then you know they had the initial idea oh she's stranded on you know she's modern 17 year old girl who's stranded on a pirate island and that's that's all they had so i had to kind of <laughs> work with that yeah they they wanted her to be very kind of like ditzy and and you know sort of like wanted a lot of the humor to come from that but I knew that that we couldn't make that last the whole game, or people yeah. would get, you know, fed up of it. Um, and obviously, people got fed up of it very quickly, <laughs> even before she started to change. But you know, sort of, yeah. I mean, she does go on a on a bit of a journey. I mean, she, she starts out very useless, you know, sort of, and and people are uh, making fun of her. But then ultimately, I mean she's the one that that saves the island you know sort of mm -hmm. um so you know sort of like she has to learn to be resourceful and and, and find her way through to solving the the island's big problem so you know she does go on a, on a journey um and I'm, i was quite pleased with the way that worked over overall i can understand why people might have got put off at the beginning but yeah perhaps they should have stuck with it a little longer <laughs> we all make um judgments don't we on on first impressions and, and mm. 
we, we give things a go for a while. You got to get to a point where where you make a decision. Do you continue or don't you? And, and some people are obviously, you know, that that decision point is much earlier than others. Mm-hmm. If people don't like it, they don't like it. So I mean, you, you can't you can't force them to like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course not. Yeah, no, you, I, if you actually look at it a bit more objectively, you can never please everybody. No, you know, so, and and so you can waste an awful lot of time trying to, or you can just get on and and make the best you possibly can with the, you know, sort of what you're trying to do. I definitely uh, agree with that uh, second approach. <laughs> uh, talking about uh, adventure games, this is something that has come up a bit on the, on the podcast with uh, other uh, also adventure game developers um, about the roles, uh, the, the identity, let's say, of puzzles in the adventure genre. Um, in that, uh, I mean, in the last 10 years, more or less, of course, we've seen a lot of uh, adventure games, which basically all but did away with the idea of puzzles being, you know, a necessity in a, in a narrative game, you know, with the Telltale, uh, Walking Dead series, or, or also you know, titles that have come out recently too. So um, how do you see the, um, the role, the identity of the puzzle in, uh, in writing an adventure game? What, what should it do? What, should, what purpose should it serve? I mean, ultimately, the, the puzzle is, is, is there to give a bit of a challenge to the player mm-hmm. um, and hopefully when they solve it, to give them the satisfaction of, of, of solving the puzzle. And hopefully, you know, sort of the puzzle will be logical. It will make sense within the context of the world that, you know, exists, you know, within the game itself. Some games are a lot more silly or nonsensical or fantastical. And so they, you know, they ha- have their own kind of logic and sometimes that logic doesn't always make sense but in a game like broken sword you see you know sort of we're, we're sort of setting it in the real world you know or a version of the real world if you like so we felt that the the puzzles needed to fit that world and be logical within that world i mean one of my favorite broken sword puzzles is is getting past getting over the fence and past the guard dog at the docks mm. in marseille mm-hmm. Because there are so many steps to that, you know, sort of like you have to, ultimately you have to get the dog biscuits and do, you know, lay a trap for the dog with the dog biscuits. But of course, to get the dog biscuits, you have to get the guy out of the hut. And to get the guy out of the hut, you need to smoke him out. So you need some way of blocking up the chimney, you know, and that all just comes together, I think, in a quite a nice way. You know, it's all there. It all makes sense. Yes, you know, you could argue that, that, you know, you wouldn't really do that in the real world. Um, or maybe you would i don't know (laughs) i've never been in that situation but the the thing is you know sort of without that challenge and what what does george do you know sort of he just you know goes past the the dog in some other way um uh maybe he just takes his wallet out and bribes the guy and says can i get in you know uh, and whilst that's a possibility i mean you've taken the fun away (laughs) Mm-hmm. people kind of trying to work this this puzzle out and 
and people genuinely do you know feel a lot of satisfaction when when you know they come to the end of the puzzle and it's all come together and and they move on to a new area and and that's that's a real sense of achievement i think or at least it used to be <laughs> <laughs> but that's not to say that that you can't make games without those traditional puzzles you can kind of have different you know kind of put the uh, challenges in different ways and, and make the interactions differently maybe it's all kind of dialogue driven or you know narrative driven if you like and, and a lot of it works where i don't feel it works is when there's next to no interaction mm. um when you're basically just walking around a world triggering you know little bits of conversation and, and, and stuff and, and that for me doesn't work it's not to say that other people won't like it it's just that for me it doesn't work you know like like dear esther a few years back um i just felt as the you know the, the world the creator was brilliant you know the, the the scenery and everything was was fantastic there was practically no interaction um other than the walking and i think i, I just thought thought that was you know a real missed opportunity to to do something a lot richer mm -hmm. Have you played, uh, speaking of walking uh, simulators, uh, have you played What Remains or Edith Finch? No, actually, not that one. Because uh, I, I feel that game, I mean, it's still basically a walking simulator in that there's no puzzles or uh, inventory or anything. But I feel that the game really strikes the perfect balance between, uh, as you said, interactivity and narrative in that uh, the rooms that you're basically exploring a big house that that every every room tells a story. So basically, mm -hmm. you're going you go on, onto different journeys into like kind of a horror vignettes or other uh, small narrative vignettes. So it's all in a house, but it's really varied anyways. There's a lot of stuff to see, and I feel that this struck a perfect balance in that it's the house that's doing the narrative that's doing the the overall story is the little objects that they're put around the rooms and the photographs. You're saying there that it's a little objects, mm -hmm. but presumably the player is is interacting with those objects. No, you're just walking. Okay, that's interesting. I do agree with you uh, in that when there's no interactivity at all, I feel a bit that there's something missing. I mean, uh, <laughs> mm. maybe because I grew up, you know, with the traditional LucasArts, Sierra games, etc. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I still haven't convinced myself that, that that's the way to do an adventure game. I still don't really love it. I mean, I, I might like it, but I never really accept it. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I feel that Edith Finch does a really good thing in that it's not just like the Orester in that you're exploring this huge, you know, the ship and the beach and the caves. But, you know, they're just beautiful locations, but they're not you know, they're not telling a story. Well, no. Edith Finch, they did, you know, that extra step that there's yeah. still no interactivity, but there's a lot of stuff to see. And there's still also some big nets are actually, uh, you know, interactive. Because, for example, uh, you're, there's a bit of a spoiler here. So, you know, if anyone hasn't played it, skip ahead. But uh, at one point, you're living the memory of uh, the protagonist's uh, older brother. And he worked at a cannery uh, with fish. And basically he was, but he didn't like working at the cannery, he was a daydreamer. 
So you're basically doing is repetitive work at the canary, you know, interactive with the sequence. And at the same time, you're also playing a sort of RPG where the, the brother is imagining himself as a king of this magical kingdom. And it's basically doing two things at the same time. They're just opposing two scenes. And I think it's beautiful. I think that's the mm. scene that I really thought, you know, there's very little interactivity because, again, you're just basically walking around in the RPG. You're not doing any fighting or <laughs> anything big. But it was perfect to show the kind of narrative, the kind of you know repetitive nature of the work juxtaposed with the dream uh, kingdom, the dream world. I think it was pretty effective. Mm. So if you ever get around to play it, I would uh, recommend it. Yeah, I'll have to have a look at that. The thing, the thing that strikes me um, with, you know, sort of like games where there is no interaction or minimal interaction mm -hmm. is, you know, sort of like if you took a parallel with, um, say, a first-person shooter, mm. I mean, if all you were doing in that first-person shooter was running around <laughs> and all the shooting and, and everything was being taken care of for you, mm -hmm then that wouldn't be an enjoyable experience mm -hmm. i don't think no. <laughs> but but you know so so i think that you know sort of like something where you're walking around just to trigger bits of story is is taking away something that they could have easily just given you know to the player even if it's a case of oh you know sort of like i walk over to this desk and pick up this you know paperweight and suddenly it triggers a bit of story. The fact that you're choosing to pick up that thing just makes enough of a difference, I think, mm -hmm. you know, to feel, to make the player feel as though they're in control of that. But <laughs> but obviously people like them. Mm -hmm. So yeah. so yeah, no, sort of it's just it's like I said, you know, you can't please everybody. You know, <laughs> and I'm I'm one of the people that that the makers of these things cannot please <laughs> <laughs> yeah well um very recently i've played uh an adventure game which is really similar to the telltale kind of framework it's called uh, last stop and it's by the developers of uh, virginia i don't know if you've played it. it was a very experimental narrative game without dialogue kind of twin peaks vibe have you played mm -hmm. no okay um last stop is basically a narrative game very much structured like a TV show. And, but the problem there is that the lack of interactivity is a real problem. All you're doing in the game, except for you know, um, choosing the, the dialogue that you want to say to the other characters, which doesn't really make that much difference anyway, but okay, um, it's basically you're walking from point A to point B. And except for that, the other interactive sequences are like, you know, rotate the analog lever to eat the breakfast cereal or to drink the milk. <laughs> and I thought that was uh, a really bad idea. I mean, <laughs> it felt like, you know, uh, can, can I do something a little more interesting than rotating a lever to make my character eat breakfast? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean... Uh... I feel what you what you mean when you say uh, the lack of interactivity can be a problem. Yeah, sometimes it's forced, you know, onto a game that maybe it was better without. I mean, at this point, just just do a, a visual novel. I would mm. say, 
Yes, I think that that you know, so it's it's clearly you know, sort of a lot of a big audience, I think, for visual novels, uh, or at least there mm-hmm. seems to be. I don't know if I'm misjudging it, but um, but even then, you kind of you're making choices, aren't you? You 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 know, you're trying to kind of like push the story on with with you know, I mean, small interactions, yes, but you're still you know, sort of like trying to work your way through it. You know, maybe taking different paths or something like this. I think that's quite valuable in a, in a way to the player. You know that they feel as though you know what they're doing is important to their experience. But there again, yeah. I mean, without experiments like Dear Esther, we would never know whether those things work or not. Um, and so playing it was valuable in the sense that. It made me think of what I do and do not like and why I think hmm. that certain things are better in a, in a certain way. Um, so I think I think they're all valuable. It's, you know, and I think that we need them. I mean, there's been a few things, hasn't there? You know, like the Stanley Parable and mm-hmm. um, something called Hair Story. I don't know if you ever, ever played that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And these these things are, you know, sort of like really important because without taking us in into different areas we wouldn't you know can be getting these new experiences so i think it, it's very valuable to have things like dear esther um and other and other things where, where people are trying new things and like you know sort of thomas was alone from a few years back hmm. um very hmm. simple of initially to what you you know what you think um but very satisfying in lots of ways and a very good narrative in a very kind of like wry, ironic way. Um, so I think it, you know, sort of these things are necessary for for the advancement of of the of gaming as a whole. I was also thinking that uh, in a way, in this last few years, at least in the adventure genre, uh, in a way, the label adventure game has wouldn't know to, to say if it has lost its meaning or it has actually acquired <laughs> new meaning. Because, you know, in the 90s, you used to say uh, adventure game or, you know, point and click adventure game. And it was pretty clear what you meant. Yeah. It was, you knew what to expect, you know, puzzles and story. And, you know, maybe a story that was, you know, a bit more de- developed than other genre. But yeah, that was pretty much the, the package. Uh, today, uh, there's many titles that are called adventure games, but, you know, there's... <laughs> very little as you said interactivity or even puzzles and mm. no puzzles at all sometimes uh so do you feel the, the the label adventure has would you say acquired new meaning or just now stands for something else what, what Actually, you when you think? think about it you know sort of like the word adventure itself you know kind of mm-hmm. suggests you know kind of like heroism and over action much more than than what a lot of adventure games actually gave you know i mean you look mm-hmm. take broken sword and there isn't much action and adventure in it is there <laughs> it's much more of a detective story than than anything mm-hmm. and the same with you know games like you know day of the tentacle or or, or grim fandango you know they're not adventures in in the sense that you'd you'd say a book is an adventure or a film is an adventure i think it's always been a little bit of a you know sort of like a a slight misnomer um a lot of it came from 
you know, way back when somebody created, you know, sort of adventure as, you know, a game title. <laughs> and suddenly all games that had a story and, you know, sort of like you're in a dark cave, you know, do you, you know, go, go north kind of thing, um, all became adventures. And then when they started using graphics, they became graphic adventures. Uh-huh. Started using point and click interface on on computers, you know, sort of that had mice. And so, you know, you get this hangover of terminology that really is slightly wrong anyway. So then you get games like, say, Tomb Raider or something, you know, games along those lines, which are more adventurous, aren't they? In in the yeah. truer meaning of the word. And that's and that's where why some games have kind of like stolen back that terminology i think um the trouble is <laughs> we don't have a term to replace it for this type of game Mm-mm. you know sort of like because not all of them are detective games and not all of them are yep. you know sort of like mysteries and and, and so on mm-hmm. so so what what do we term them <laughs> you know and that's that's the problem we've yeah we've lost the term except you know when people say oh it's a point and click adventure and suddenly everybody goes (laughs) (laughs) oh that's died to death hasn't it yes yes (laughs) you know but i mean one of the things with changes in technology with you know phones and tablets where you know you get touchscreen interfaces is that you know the traditional adventure game is is perfect for those interfaces you know yeah. You know, Broken Sword has done very well on them, you know, kind of when they were, you know, sort of reworked for that. You know, when they did the Beneath Steel Sky for the iPhone, I mean, that was that was quite a success. You know, the tablets and, and, and phones are, are just perfect for, for that type of gameplay. And we've seen games that have concentrated on the puzzles as well to the detriment of story and character and, and such. But that doesn't mean that, you know, there's, you know, that was called just room, wasn't it? Um, mm. You know, where you had to solve all those puzzles. Grief, that kept that kept me busy for a long time. <laughs> it, was, it was a great game, but there's no real story yeah. in it at all, at all, was there? You know. Um, but yeah, so it, it's it's always a problem when when you you attribute a word or a term to something, and then it sticks. And you need to go beyond that because, you know, sort of like a lot of games have gone beyond, mm-hmm. you know, the simple point and click, try this on that way of doing things. Um, maybe we, we should go the, down the route of uh, the roguelite, you know, the, the roguelite, roguelike, you know, adventure-like, adventure-lite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but then you put off all the people that, you know, like adventures. <laughs> Yeah, as you said, you can please everybody. No. But I've noticed that some people just don't call them anything, do they? You know, oh, here's a game, oh. you know, and you look at it and you think, well, this is an adventure, really. <laughs> um, but they've just not called it that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Life is strange. Um, I haven't played much of that, I must admit. I keep meaning to go back to it. But, I mean, it's never been described as an adventure, but kind of is isn't it in some ways yeah you know and and you get that with with a few things you know uh, a night in the woods has kind of adventure like Mm -hmm. you know sort of 
ways of, of interacting and, and getting through yeah. the game. I think I think that's the trick is you just release this game and <laughs> don't call it anything. <laughs> <laughs> the, let's say that the gender fluidity of adventure games. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because some people call it uh, call them narrative games, but uh, I mean, there's a lot of games that have narrative, not just adventures at this point. So uh, you would be you know narrative focused, uh, but that, that becomes a bit specific. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it is it is a problem you want to emphasize the narrative but you don't want to lose track of the fact that that maybe it has puzzles or other types of interactivity maybe it is the narrative that's the primary driver and maybe that narrative can can play out depending on the input of the the, the player mm-hmm. but you know sort of how do you how do you encapsulate that and <laughs> another thing is yeah. of course you know it's like young young players now you know, sort of like, oh, sort of like just getting into the teens. There uh, might not be, might not fully understand what an adventure is in in the you know traditional sense, mm-hmm. because it's not a term that they they may be you know sort of like have come across very often if at all. They probably wouldn't know what to expect if they saw it. You know, oh, this is a point and click adventure. <laughs> yeah, what's that? <laughs> because you know. <laughs> You yeah. think about it, you know, sort of, and Broken Sword came out 25 years ago, you know, sort of, and that's, Mm-mm. you know, 10 years before most teenagers were born. Like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's ancient history to them. In a way, it's, um, it's interesting to, to talk about this because we're, I use the term we, mm. <laughs> as a general we. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, in gaming, I mean, I'm I'm 37, but we're basically uh, the first generation that uh, you know has seen kind of you know evolution in things, and now the new generation, of course, uh, has no idea what happened in the 80s, in the 90s, in you know, in all those periods that seem pretty close mm. still <laughs> to me, but they're not, as you said. It's been, you know, 25 years since uh, Broken Sword has come out. So that's a lot. That's not really yesterday. Uh, so, so in a way, I think we're the first generation that has this memory of things changing that, you know, understands, as you said, uh, what the point and click is or even what came before that, the, the textual adventures and the semi-textual adventures. The younger people, of course, would have no idea that is. I mean, maybe their first adventure was... Uh, you know, life is strange, for example, which, as you said, kind of an adventure. So <laughs> you can't really. Uh, it would be uh, difficult to uh, to put life is strange together with um, I don't know, Loom or the Secret of Monkey Island. You know, that, <laughs> uh, but not because they're from two different periods, because they're really t- two different products. <laughs> yes. uh, so it's, it's weird to think that we're the first generation to have this kind of memory of things that happen because with all other media it's different you know with movies and with books of course and everything music and everything else there's a lot of stuff that happened in the past and that's you know long gone basically it's old so it's old history at this point but with gaming it's all relatively recent so you know it's strange living through this sort of generational passage that's another <laughs> problem isn't it the you know, it's like gaming is so reliant on on directly on the technology. You know, mm-hmm. sort of like a game that's made for 
for the iPad and uh, would never play on the Amiga, you know, and vice versa. <laughs> um, not directly. Whereas a film can be shown virtually anywhere, can't it? You know, yeah. without, I mean, you might get, you know, on a small screen, you might lose some of the detail or, or quality. And, but, you know, fundamentally, you know, showing the showing of films hasn't changed, well, over 100 years. Um, yeah. Yes, we've had, you know, sort of like advances in techn technology. We've gone from black and white to colour. We've, we've, in, you know, there's been an introduction of sound back in the 20s, wasn't there? And, and, and stuff like this. Yeah, it, it's, you know, and then you, you've, you've obviously got, you know, higher quality over the years and, and special effects have got better and, and stuff like this. But the fundamentals yeah. of telling a story in film are, are really the same as they were, you know, back when cinema started. Whereas gaming is is you know constantly trying to find its feet in new ways and and having to deal with constant changes in technology and upgrades and, and all the rest of it, it it doesn't lend itself to kind of like you know the, the what's known as the long tail you know kind of like the mm -hmm. the way that you know kind of like books and films and stuff like this you know can can be just as good you know like. 10, 20, you know, 50 years down the line. Whereas games are seen as dated, aren't they, you know, very quickly. Yeah. Um, I remember in 1997 that I used to talk about retro gaming, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, kind of surprising to think about it now. Mm. If you think about it back then, I mean, you remember, of course, the Commodore 64, and I grew up with the Commodore 64. But if you think about it, and a game from 1993 compared to a game from 1997, there were very different beasts. Mm. There were very different products. Well, you know, today, if you compare a game from you know this year to a game that came out four years ago, maybe you would see some difference, but not really that much of a technological, you know, no. advance, uh, generational gap. Let's say that. If you think to, to, you know, the Commodore 64 to the Amiga, that kind of gap you wouldn't see anymore today, I think. And e even in the, the next few years, I think we won't see any any more kind of this big. No, gap. I think I think that we've reached a little bit of a saturation mm -hmm. in, in terms of visual quality, haven't we? You know, yeah. sort of like, yes, we could go to, to 8K or something like this. But you know, most people won't notice that difference. Yes, we can put more, you know, polygons on screen with with faster processing and stuff like this. But most people won't notice that difference, and that's what that's the thing. When I started, as I say, I, I started with Revolution. We were working on Beneath the Steel Sky, and that was in a resolution of uh, three twenty by two forty. That was the, the that was the monitor resolution, and that is tiny compared to today's monitors. When we finished that game and moved on to Broken Sword, we were planning to do Broken Sword in the same resolution. But then, you know, we were only a short way into the development when, you know, better monitors were starting to come out and CD ROMs were, were starting to be, you know, kind of like the, the medium of choice instead of the floppy disk. And so suddenly it gave you the opportunity to kind of say, oh, hang on a minute, we can do something so much better we can up the resolution um to you know 640 by 480 which obviously we did um and that's four times the screen area 
you know yep. you can get four times the amount of detail and even that is tiny compared to to modern <laughs> work. but that was such a big jump at the time mm -mm. you know and and we were fortunate really in the sense that that we were shifting from one project to another just as this this change in technology was taking place so we could embrace it and make broken sword as as good as it was and and a lot of the visual quality comes down to you know kind of like embracing that higher resolution and bringing in people that could do it justice yeah i think you know once you're approaching that kind of photorealistic kind of graphics i think that there's basically nowhere else left to go you're stuck that that's it you uh, peaked as i said uh, so, so in a way i think we're starting to see more kind of trying to do something else artistically, mm -hmm. yeah, especially in indie gamings, but not so, not not just in indie gaming. So that's something that I really appreciate personally. And actually, speaking about the '90s, <laughs> something <laughs> that uh, I've recently seen kind of making a comeback, which was uh, personally I, I like to see, is uh, FMV. The, you know, the full motion video kind mm. of uh, ad adventures. Let's stick with the adventures. Uh, I don't know if you played any like the night shift or the shape shifting detective, but I know you worked on the bunker, which was right, yes. really f fantastic. Actually, I liked it a lot. I mean, I didn't know you worked on it, but now that I, I know, I, I see the the quality. Yeah, well, um, you know, so I, I worked on the story and 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 some of the some of the puzzle design and, and so on um the guy who led the project a guy called alan plenderleth mm -hmm. um you know he's got a lot of um history in making films and tv and stuff like this so he knew how to do the filming parts and he brought me and a couple of others on you know who had the experience in in game stuff so between us you know so we mapped out you know something that we thought was quite good and and of course you know it was filmed in a genuine cold war bunker Mm -mm. which had tons of atmosphere and you know the way it was lit and everything and of course adam brown um, was fa fantastic in the role yeah um, so you know it was just a number of things that all came together and i think that that the quality you know sort of like we've got the technology now to deliver the good quality in in the actual recorded full motion parts so i think that that we can make it much more seamless than than it used to be but also, you know, sort of like we're seeing more um, interactive films and TV. Uh, mm -hmm. A friend of mine does something called Tri Life, and these are kind of completely interactive, you know, films effectively, mm -hmm. um, but with genuine, you know, sort of like choices being made for the characters. Some of his films, I mean, he's done six or seven now, and some of them have, you know, loads and loads of paths, possible paths through them um mm -hmm. but you know based on the choices that you make for the characters and they're just so complex and it and and yet you know sort of he gets it all organized you know sort of like in this huge flow chart you know sort of all the scenes that he needs to record and the variations of scenes and stuff like this and just goes out and films it all and, and then effectively sticks it all together in this mm -hmm. interaction yeah. and so i think we'll we'll see a lot more filmed interactivity if you like um you know whether that has game playing as well you know remains to be seen but i think there's a lot more space 
than they used to be, you know, for games like the bunker and, and, and similar things. So hopefully we'll see more. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you said, today with the technology being much better and uh, yeah, you know, even in even in the case of the, the bunker, I think they shooting, I think with a low budget, they were able to do it uh, in such a good way that it actually helps. I mean, it's actually good to have a, <laughs> that kind of low budget feel to the to the overall shooting because I think it helps the the narrative of being trapped uh, in a in a bunker and uh, to uh, escape. So I think that also worked in uh, in favor of the the project. So yeah, um, I also hope to see uh, more of that. I'm not so sure on the um, interactive movie in Philly. Uh, <laughs> that mm, I'm a bit on the fence. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that generally speaking, it's probably you know sort of like not everybody's cup of tea and it's certainly not meant to necessarily you know kind of like hit a gamer's audience mm -hmm. but the tri-life films were were designed to reach you know sort of like teenagers mm -hmm. you know about things that, that are maybe troubling them you know things like you know teenage pregnancy or gang culture or abuse of, of various sorts and things like this you know that they're, they're not kind of like delicate topics mm -hmm. you know so so it's worth checking out um just to see what they're what they're doing with it um you know and they're quite hard hitting i mean they don't pull any punches you know mm -hmm. characters can die you know people you know characters can get pregnant you know they, they, they may take drugs because of the choices that you make for them and, and stuff like this so mm -hmm. it's not <laughs> It's not sort of like, you know, sort of, um, you know, sugarcoating anything, but at the same time, it is trying to sort of like say, well, look, you know, we're not we're not judging your choices, but we're no. saying that if you make these choices, there are consequences, you know, mm -hmm. and that's that's really what it's about, you see. We, we've talked a bit about, I, I think, maybe the the future of the adventure genre, but. Um... I was curious to have your uh, opinion on something that Dave Gilbert of uh, Wadget Eyes said uh, a while ago on Twitter. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, going back to the uh, tired uh, discussion on uh, adventure games being dead, and he said uh, that uh, any um, adventure game developer is uh, really proud of actually belonging to a dead genre, of working inside a dead genre. So. No, no one will say that. No developer will ever say no. Adventure games are not dead because you know they're kind of proud of being uh, <laughs> working inside something that is uh, dead. Of course, I'm, I'm, I mean we know that that discussion is kind of old at this point and mostly useless. But uh, what do you think about the yeah yeah this comment that Dave uh, did and the overall future of the genre? Well, I think I think Dave's a great guy. I mean, you know, yeah. sort of, you, you, you cannot just, cannot not admire him, if you know what I mean. You know, sort of, mm -hmm. he's just, I mean, not only, not only is he enthusiastic about what he does, um, he's enthusiastic about the genre as a whole, he's enthusiastic about games as a whole, mm -hmm. and, and he does an awful lot to support, you know, sort of, not only, you know, what he does himself, but other, you know, kind of indie developers of, of, adventure games and i think that he's doing a, he's doing the most of anybody to to keep the genre alive yeah <laughs> sorry or should that be 
you know, dead but alive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and you know, it's it's fun to joke about. You know, sort of the you know, yeah. we're all working in this dead dead genre. <laughs> it's it's silly the way they keep talking about. But I think that you know that the, the fact that people have to keep saying, "Oh, this you know, adventure games are dead," really proves that it, they aren't. <laughs> um, otherwise, they wouldn't have to keep saying it. And I think that. I think it's it, the people that say it clearly aren't the people who want to play adventure games, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that other people don't. So it's just a bit. I think I think the potential for adventures in the future is quite large, but I think that you know, so it kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier. I mean, do we really need to call them adventures? I mean, if you're doing a detective game where you know your hero is called is you know sort of investigating missing divorcees or something like this <laughs> mm-hmm. is this is it really an adventure or is it more game noir if you like you know mm-hmm. or you know is it a kind of interactive crime fiction if you like mm-hmm. um, and i think this is what what the problem is you know sort of we've tried to lump all these point and click puzzle based games in as one and quite as you said as you said earlier you know that there are so many of them that are are very different from each other Mm -hmm. we talk of you know adventure games as if it's a genre but in other media genre means something else completely differently you know detective films are a genre you know adventure films are a genre Mm -hmm. but not you know not in gaming it's about a lot of it is about the interface or the style of gameplay rather yeah. than what would be termed genre in 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 other media yeah so we've we've confused ourselves a lot Mm-mm. with our terminology i think over the years and it just hasn't helped it's it's like you know sort of like when you you see things don't know if you go to any comic online comic sites you know, mm-hmm. sort of, and they describe things very differently. It's like, oh, this comic's slice of life. This comic is supernatural or something like this, mm-hmm. you know, sort of. And and that's very different to how we would describe it in games. You might get two games that, that are both supernatural in their themes, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but one might be an adventure, another might be a first-person shooter. And you wouldn't really expect the same audience to to play those games yeah i think that that's really a good point in that maybe it would be uh useful to kind of switch the point of view from let's say the the, the technical the, the interface uh point of view to something else that is you know yeah more similar to comic books but i think it's something that also a bit happens in music for example when i mean we have the very broad terms like rock or pop, and there's basically <laughs> anything goes inside <laughs> those big uh, pots. Yeah. There's really anything inside. So I think that's a bit what happens with um, with adventures. And the, the, another thing that I think it's unique to the, to the genre is that it's um, really fueled by nostalgia. You, you, I, I don't know if you ever see any Kickstarter of any new point and click, but do happen to browse some of them, and you get a lot of reference 
to games that are, you know, really quite old at this point, <laughs> 30 years old. And they yeah. use it as a, selling, as a selling point. And it would be strange if you use that very same idea for any other genre in gaming. You know, for example, uh, in, I don't know, in, in a football game. Uh, you know, this football game plays as good as FIFA 97. In first-person <laughs> shooter, there's kind of a nostalgia revival there too. But, uh, I mean, e even a few years ago, you wouldn't see a game, first-person shooter, saying, oh, this plays as good as Wolfenstein 3D. Um, no, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I think it would be time to let go of that old nostalgia vibe. I mean, we, we all love the classics, but, you know, it's been a few years, so maybe it's time to, yeah, to move on. Yeah, the problem there is the fact that, you know, the, the, there's, there's been a lot of good recent adventures, mm -hmm. but no one ever talks about them in the same way that they do with the classics, yeah. like, well, like Broken Sword or like Monkey Island mm -hmm. or, or you know, sort of like uh, King's Quest or something like this. And that's a shame, really, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, sort of, you know, you look at, you know, some of the stuff that Dave Gilbert has done, you know, with, um, with, his, with his games um, and the way that, you know, sort of like he's slowly progressing them, you know, sort of the way he approaches the making of them and, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think that some of those games are modern classics, yet you yeah. wouldn't it's it's unlikely that they would get termed that way in relation to the genre as a whole or as gaming, you know, mm -hmm. gaming as a whole, if you like. And I think that's a shame really. And certainly, you know, sort of if somebody compared something I'd done to to one of Dave's games, I'd be I'd be well pleased. <laughs> Do you think we will? Um, uh, that's kind of a trick question. I mean, do you think we will ever see a AAA adventure game again? <laughs> oh, grief! <laughs> I don't know. To be honest, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Have we ever? <laughs> <laughs> I think that we will. We will get adventure-like narrative games that are of high quality. I mean, you could argue that. David Cage is doing trying to do his mm -hmm. best, but yep. I must admit that that he never quite delivers, you know. And certainly he gets mm -hmm. he gets the funding and he gets the publicity. Yeah, it's a shame that they aren't as good as the promise, generally speaking, um, because they are, you know, the amount of of work that goes into mm -hmm. those games, you know, they should be, you know, brilliant. But yep. often they're so often let down by. The story or the characters or you know sort of like the interface is a bit funny or so, you know mm -hmm. it's never quite it's never quite delivered has it yeah probably a heavy rain came closest but even that had a lot of flaws which is a shame uh, i think maybe the last uh, classic point and click uh, project that uh, a lot of money was invested so I, I, I wouldn't say AAA, but, you know, that kind got a pretty huge um, financing was uh, Double Fine's uh, Broken Age. I don't know if you played it. Oh, yeah, I couldn't get into that. Yeah, it was one of the 
original backers for the Broken Age Kickstarter. I think I backed it for like $120 plus shipping. And yeah, that was kind of a letdown because it wasn't very clear, at least to me, from the Kickstarter. But yeah, I don't think they had a very clear idea on what they wanted to do and what the story was supposed to be. I mean, they were just like, let's do a point and click that that is supposed to play like one of the classic ones that Tim Schafer has worked on. That was sort of really the, <laughs> the only idea for the Kickstarter. I don't think he delivered on his promise as well as mm-hmm. we all hoped, which was a shame, really, because, you know, you look at what he did with Psychonauts, Mm-hmm. And that was a brilliant game. So yeah, it's 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 a funny one, isn't it? It's like it's like the Telltale games as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought they they got better as they went along. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Because the first game, which was Bone, um, I don't think that did Bone justice at all. Because that's one of my favourite comics of all time. Mm-hmm. And the game I thought was awful. And then was there something else? Then they did Salmon Max, didn't they? And that was okay. Yeah, that was no, better. Yes. I don't think it quite had the the humour of the original. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't quite as sharp. It was okay. I mean, there was one, one or two bits that I, I thought were, were more tedious than anything. But mm-hmm. but it was best. And then, you know, things like... I, d- I didn't play The Walking Dead. Because I don't like zombies. <laughs> <laughs> but um the wolf among us i thought was was quite good yeah but you know minimal interaction in a way yes i mean it was it was interactive story wasn't it rather than a full you know proper game as such i think Mm -hmm. um but they did well you know but again not really triple a yeah so yeah maybe we we won't see another triple a but you know i think maybe in the end that's that's for the better because as you've said, mentioning Dave Gilbert and uh, or even Lamplight City by Francisco Gonzalez, uh, there's plenty of indie games that are, mm. you know, picking up the slack, <laughs> that are doing pretty well for the genre. So, I mean, who, who needs AAA, right? And, you know, sort of like one of the great things about about some of the indie games is that they have great humor in them. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a game called Yorkshire Gubbins. I don't know if you've played that no i don't know that one (laughs) and it's just so funny you know everybody speaks with the yorkshire accent so Mm. hey up there lad are you all right (laughs) (laughs) and it's just you know that's its real strength and yeah it's a bit of nonsense i mean don't take itself seriously but it's it's good fun and then there's things like a night in the woods Mm -hmm. which a lot of people probably wouldn't class as an adventure but it's not far from being one you know um you know and i think that, that you, you get that don't you? you know so and then you get people creating really small things which you know might just be a few a few locations you know and a couple of characters mm-hmm. you know but they're just trying to just tell a little tale you know mm-hmm. through an adventure game and i think that you know that's to be applauded as well you know I've only got, you know, a short amount of time to do these things because, you know, I have a full-time job or something. So they make small things. And that, that I think, is better. Yeah. Because a lot of people, you know, when they, when they start trying to make a game, 
um the aim too big you know they're sort of like they're set out to to create an epic game and there's only them and the friend <laughs> mm -hmm. and you think oh, you're never going to do that aim small create a five minute game create a half hour game or something like this you know something that you'll know you'll finish and and that's far better you know and then you can move on to to the big stuff when you've you know you've got a bit of experience okay I would gladly talk to Stephen on a couple of hours, but I'm pretty sure he has bad things to do, so I will let him go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I would like to uh, thank Steve for his time, for being here with me. Oh, you're very welcome. I've enjoyed it, talking. Yeah, and I look forward to talk again in the future about any, any projects you're working on. Yes, yes, hopefully do so. Um, certainly got projects on, on the go at the moment. Uh, and my uh, recent book is uh, about game writing, mm -hmm. so <laughs> it's always there. And after saying thanks to Steve, I would also like to thank you, the listeners, for joining me on this weird journey that was the first season of the Genesis Temple podcast, which you've come to the end of. And yeah, it's been really fun for me to have all these great guests, all these people that I wanted to talk to for years. I'd also like to mention that you can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can listen to episodes before they're released to the general public, and you can also support the website on Coffee. Yeah, well, that's it for me, and looking forward to see you in Season 2, where we'll have some very exciting guests. So, so remember to tune in. Yeah, see you soon.